Amen. Thank you, Julia. Appreciate that. Excellent. And a blessing. Let's see, Jake, if you go back, turn that fan down. So that is uh, just 12 o'clock straight up. And Brother Chris will have to just sweat a little more as the heat collects up there. And we could just turn it off and just watch Brother Chris wilt. And is Fleece up there tonight? Yeah. So when you got to where I couldn't see anymore, I'd know it'd be time to quit. Amen. And, uh, and let's see what else. I see Brother uh, Hamrick has... Not back there. I had a question for him, but take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, Brother John, chapter 6. Maybe I need to send everybody a text message. Amen. Uh, Chapter 6, Mary, Isaiah chapter 6. This is a tough one tonight. Usually it's not this. Yeah, what I say? <laughs> I said, I'm trying to make sure the fan's the right speed. we got the neighbor kid running in and out of the building. And so I'm trying to monitor that and get that problem fixed. The Wi-Fi is not working right, so FaceTime Live isn't working right. Is it working right now? No. Okay, now it is. So we got several things we're monitoring up here, okay, while we're trying to have church and uh, trying to keep up with it all. So uh, I think maybe Brother Craig might have fixed the neighbor problem. So uh, either that or the neighbor kid took him out because Brother Craig disappeared, amen. So I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we'll see if he comes back. Isaiah chapter 6. And verse number one, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another. It's very similar to the, what we've been seeing in our uh, study of Revelation. Very similar scene in heaven. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight. I thank you for this time. We can look into your word, and Lord, I pray that you would challenge us with truth tonight that will be a help and encouragement to us, for we ask in your name, amen. Isaiah lived in a day much like today when the nation of Israel was straying further and further from obedience to the word of God. And God raised up Isaiah to preach his word and warn the leaders and the people of God's coming judgment. And after estimated two years of preaching, an event took place that uh, an interesting event. You wouldn't necessarily think it would be 
something that would uh, affect Isaiah's life, certainly not to the degree that it did. But an event took place that uh, changed his life. And we look back, verse number one, and it begins with this. In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year he died. Now, Uzziah had lived about 50, had reigned, reigned for 52 years. This is towards the end of his reign. In fact, he had reigned at this time for 52 years. He'd taken the throne at the age of 16, which if you study the Old Testament kings, 52 years of reigning, I mean, that would be a long time today, right? And how would you like to have a president for 52 years, amen? But he started reigning at 16 years old. How would you teenagers like to be king? Bishan? You're the one that raised your hand. <laughs> so, so if you're not a teenager anymore, you need to confirm that. Amen. And uh, but um, but anyway, 16 years old, he's king and he reigns for 52 years and he starts out as a very godly king, a good king. But over the course of his reign, as you see so often in Israel's history, uh, he was lifted up in pride and God struck him with leprosy. And in the early years of Isaiah's ministry, Uzziah dies. And it obviously was a very significant event to Uzziah, or to, yes, to Uzziah, but to Isaiah. It made a big impact on his life. Maybe it was his death of the king. And, and keep in mind, this would have been the only king that Isaiah had ever known. And uh, now he's dead. Maybe it made him realize his own mortality. You know something about someone dying who you've looked up to or who you've respected or who's important, and all of a sudden you realize, hey, if they can die, I can go too. Maybe it was that. Uh, maybe it was uh, Uzziah's death that uh, led him to, to, to maybe he thought, you know what, Uzziah's going to take us back to God. He's going to turn around. He's going to get right, and all of a sudden he's dead. And maybe it's that he's thinking, like, who is going to lead this nation now that Uzziah is gone? Maybe he realized there was a void in Israel's leadership. But regardless, what we do know is he has a vision. And uh, after that, where he sees the Lord, he act, act, enters into heaven, and he sees God sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, Verse 1, and his train fills the temple, and in this vision, he sees God firsthand. Now, folks, I'm telling you, there's something about seeing God none of us ever have here, but there's something about seeing God firsthand that would change all of our lives. And uh, we think we know God, as, jo as Job said, when God interacted with him one-on-one, -on -one, he said, uh, you know, he basically said to paraphrase, you know what, I, th I thought I knew God, but now that I've seen him, uh, he says, boy, I'm in big trouble. And that's the same response we get from Isaiah. Look at verse number five. It says, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. He says, woe is me, I am finished. That's the, what the holiness of God would do to us if we were brought into God's presence. We would realize how 
great God is. And look, Isaiah had been preaching. He'd been uh, uh, doing the work of God for two years by the time you get to this point, it's believed. But yet when he comes here, he sees himself not in a good light. He sees himself as a man of unclean lips. Isn't that an interesting thing? He mentions out of all, not an unclean heart, which he would have realized that, but unclean lips. You know what? It's important what we say, how we speak. It's just interesting that he notes it's unclean lips. And he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, you know what? I look all around me and I see the same problem, a sin nature in everybody. And folks, that's what, that's what it is. We're all in the same boat. Amen. We're all sinners and hopefully sinners saved by grace. And so this is what Isaiah says. And in that, all of his self-righteousness, if he had any, if he had thought he had any, it disappears when he comes into the presence of God. Look at verse number six. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So when God sees Isaiah's humble acknowledgement of his sin, God did for Isaiah what Isaiah could not do for himself. He purged him from his sin. Now, we know that we're saved by putting our faith in Christ. And there's some symbolism here. But one point we can make, and that is there are as many things you can do in life for yourself. But there's one thing you can't do, and that is you can't save your own soul. And this seraphim comes with this coal and places it on his lips where he had acknowledged his sin. And it says his iniquity is taken away. So God changes that part of his uh, situation. And look at the rest of the verse, or look at verse number eight. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying... Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? So here in the midst of this scene, Uzziah's died. Isaiah's kind of left in a quandary. He's wondering about the nation. He's concerned for it. He's taken up in this vision to heaven. He sees God, and he realizes how, or realizes his own sin, and he's purged from that sin. And then he hears God ask a question. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, it's an interesting thing. This is a vision. We don't have, by the way, we don't have visions today. This was back still uh, 700, 800 B.C., uh, back when the word of God was still being written. But, you know, here we see God speaking, and though the God does not speak to us in an audible voice and through visions as he did here with Isaiah. I do believe that God still speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. Again, not in an audible voice. But God gives us uh, direction through his spirit. Through, By the way, that's why it's important to be in church, to be under the preaching of the word of God. And because that's, a, that's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to lead and guide us, to 
deal, even, even to deal with problems that maybe the pastor isn't even preaching on, but the Holy Spirit can take a truth, can take something that the pastor says, can take a verse um, that is read in the preaching time and, and say, hey, there's the answer to your problem. There's the direction you need. The Holy Spirit can do that same thing during your own personal time of Bible reading and prayer. Many times over the years, uh, I've had the Holy Spirit uh, lead and guide uh, during my personal Bible reading and prayer time, but he does speak, and that's what Isaiah hears the Lord speak, and here's the next point. God is always looking for someone to go. God's always looking for someone to go. You know, God could have come down. He could have sent the angels to do his work. And the angels certainly uh, help with his work in this, on this earth. But when it comes to going, when it comes to reaching out with the gospel, when it comes to spreading the word of God, God is always looking for someone to go. And he was here. Notice in this question God doesn't say where he was wanting to send someone the question was to paraphrase it who will go wherever I need someone to go let me tell you something when you're seeking the will of God you have to do it on God's terms not your own you don't come to the Lord and say okay Lord here's what I will do I will go here I will go there you have three choices if you don't want any of those three, then, then count me out. That's not the way it works. The way it works when we surrender the will of God is, Lord, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. Destination here is open-ended when God said he was looking for someone to go. The requirements were relatively minimal, basic submission, basic surrendering to one's will, to the will of God. And in that vast host of heaven, here's Isaiah now, he's in heaven, obviously others around, all the angels, obviously, as we've seen from Revelation, the pictures of the throne room of God, undoubtedly, uh, there were many others around. This question is asked, and you have to wonder if Isaiah didn't look around for a few minutes or for a few seconds, and say, hey, I wonder who is going to answer that question. You know, it's like sitting in the stands, watching, and saying, hey, who's, you know, well, who's going to go? God just asked a question. And I don't know what it was about that particular moment in time, but somehow Isaiah all of a sudden says, hey, you know what? What about me? And from out of the depths of Isaiah's heart came the response, here am I, send me. Folks, you know that's the response God is looking for from each one of us. And by the way, not just one that's done because everybody else is doing it or one that's done because, you know, there was a push for that, but one that genuinely comes to the, a response, here am I, send me, that is genuine. And by the way, a pastor can't make that genuine in anybody else's heart. 
Here am I. Send me. Isaiah calls out. By the way, I don't think it was a here am I. Send me if you can't find anybody else. I don't think it was a here am I. Send me even though I don't want to go. I don't think it was a here am I. Uh, tell me what I will get out of this, and I will think about it. I think it was, here am I, send me. I think it was, here am I, I want to go. I want to be the one. Please send me. And here's Isaiah at this critical time in the nation. He has this vision undoubtedly wondering what direction the nation is going to go and all of a sudden realizing that God wants him to be the one to go to the nation. I ask us today, where are the Christians who will hear the voice of God and realize that he is calling out to us? Where are the Christians, older children, teenagers, adults, middle-aged Senior citizens, where are the Christians who will answer God's call? Where are the Christians who will confess their sin, hear the voice of God, and respond, here am I, send me. Please let me go. You know, as I talk to pastors around the country, you know what I hear? And that is that the number of young people going into full-time Christian service is, from what I hear, dropping. The number of young people coming out of our churches, I'm talking about the independent Baptist churches, uh, who are saying, hey, and even those who go to Bible college, I was talking to someone recently, works at a Bible college, and of course, as we try to look for a pastor for the church here uh, in the coming days. Uh, you know, I've been talking to different ones, and I, I was talking to a pastor about a Bible college, one of our good Bible colleges, and his comment was, and he is very involved with it, his comment was, I don't even know when I look at the ones coming to Bible college where the pastors are going to come from for our churches moving forward. I said, well, what are the students, I mean, you're, what are the students doing? You know, what are they going? He said, well, they're coming, they're good, good kids, and they, but a lot of times he says they just are trying to get, you know, they're there to get a good foundation to, uh, you know, go out and be involved in some type of a secular job, be involved in a church, be part of a church. But when it comes to those who are going to be pastors, those who are going to be missionaries, those who are going to really lead moving into the future, he says, I don't know. I don't know where they're going to come from. I called, and maybe I mentioned this, I called Pastor Randy King uh, when we were looking for, uh, when I knew back in the spring that we would be looking, I called him and I said, hey, I said, here's the situation, here's what we're trying to do, I'm looking for somebody to come in, and he said, brother, he said, I... I, for every, uh, he said, I wish I had somebody. He says, for every one person I know of, there's 10 churches that are looking for somebody. By the way, I encourage us as a church to be praying. 
because there's not an abundance of, of pastors to pastor even the current churches. Here am I. Send me. Please let me go. Where are the young people? I said to the person I was talking to about, about the Bible college, I said, you know, when, when we went to college, that was kind of the, the thing. The thing was, hey, we are all in. I mean, this is it. This is what God's called us to do. He said, that's right. He said, but that is not as much anymore, even in our good colleges. I don't know why that is. I can't answer why that is, but I will tell you this. The need is as great or greater than it's ever been. It's not because the need has dropped. It's not because there's the mission fields have been reached and everybody's been saved. I'll tell you what, there are millions of people out there who have never heard the gospel. Amen. Young people, I encourage you as you pray and as you seek for God's will, one of your, uh, your attitudes you ought to seek to come to is, Lord, here am I, send me. Now, he may not call you to preach young men. I don't believe he calls the young ladies to preach. But he may not call you that. He may not call you into missions. I believe he can call the young ladies into mission work or to be the wife of a pastor or to teach in a Christian school or to be involved in uh, a Christian ministry. But there's a huge need today for that. And I'm not against Getting a job and making money and being part of a church and tithing and giving. It takes that too, amen? You got to pay the bills. And I'm thankful for all the folks here that are faithful and come, who attend and regularly and are here faithfully and serve and, and work in the different ministries. We couldn't do it without that. But I ask you this, young people, if the leaders of the next generation don't come from our churches, where are they going to come from? Isaiah here, very critical time in his nation's history, in, in the history of Israel, and he has this attitude, here am I, send me, and I think his attitude was, please let me go. In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, he was already a millionaire. As a graduation present, his parents gave him a trip around the world. As Borden traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he found a burden growing for the world's hurting people. Finally, he wrote home to say, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. Now think about this, this is a man who is heir to a fortune, Borden Milk. And I don't know if the company still exists today, but it was a uh, big uh, company at that time. After making this decision, William Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible. This is high school graduation. He wrote, no reserves. No reserves. Borden arrived at Yale University. Now, this is an interesting history of Yale University, which today 
is a godless pagan institution. But this was 1904. By the way, I think my grandfather was born in 1904, so it's not all that far removed from today. But um, he arrives there in 1905, just as one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him. One of them wrote, he came to car college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was, as sol that was solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration. That's a different Yale University than what you got today. Borden's first disappointment was hearing Yale's president speak on the student's need of having a fixed purpose. After that speech, Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purposes should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. As Borden looked around him at Yale, he, he lamented the results of this empty philosophy, moral weakness, and sin-ruined lives. During his semester at Yale, Borden started a movement that transformed the campus. A friend of his described how it happened. It was well on the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill Borden. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's group was the beginning of the daily groups of prayer that spread to every one of the college classes. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible studies. By the time he was a senior, 1,000 out of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden made it his habit to choose the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, we organized Bible study groups and divided up the class of 300 or more, each man interested taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. The names were gone over one by one. And the question asked, who will take this person or that? When it came to one who was a hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put him down to me. Borden did not confine his ministry outreach to the Yale campus. He rescued drunks on the streets of New Haven. To rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. He might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night, on the street, in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant 
to which he had taken a poor, hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. Borden's missionary call came to focus on Muslims in China. Now, can you imagine a more difficult group of people to reach than Muslims living in China? And by the way, the Muslims are still there and the Chinese are persecuting them for their faith. And estimated now, possibly hundreds of thousands of them put into camps as we speak. But you know, the shame of it is they're put into camps and they are suffering for a faith that isn't even going to save their soul. But at this point, after his travel around the world, this is where the Lord took his heart. From that goal, Borden never wavered. He also inspired his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said this, He certainly was one of the strongest characters I have ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him. And I always felt he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, literally, Bill seemed to realize that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as president of the Honor Society Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. He also wrote two more words in his Bible, no retreats. He went on to graduate at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, Borden sailed for China to work with Muslims. He stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, at the age of 25 years old, William Borden was dead. When the death of William Borden was cabled from Egypt, it seemed as though a wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave up his wealth, but himself. A waste, you say, not in God's plan. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written no regrets. Now you think about that. There's a young man who was given an opportunity in life that most of us would dream about. A multi-million dollar fortune. And yet, he said no. He said, no, my burden is to reach folks with the gospel. God gave him the burden to go to China. And he never made it to China. Died before he got there. But you know what? God is still using his testimony today to inspire young people like we have here tonight and to say, hey, 
Are you willing to go? Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? So if heads bowed, eyes closed tonight.